Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast here on this rather dark but quite nice day here in Melbourne. If you're podcasting or if you're uh, streaming later in the week, then... uh, It will probably be a completely different experience, but it's the same good information. Today we're going to uh, go and visit the uh, Timor-Leste debacle. Well, it's not Timor-Leste's problem, it's actually Australia's problem. The 1.8% of a line between Australia and uh, Timor-Leste that won't be drawn by the Australian government because uh, it's so keen to uh, back the interests of particular capitalists who want to exploit the oil and gas reserves that are closer to Timor-Leste than Australia. But uh, Australia wants to pretend that uh, instead of following the normal process of uh, maritime boundaries, it's going to push the envelope and uh, say that it's actually the continental shelf that uh, should be the demarcation between Timor-Leste and Australia. Shame, shame, Australia. Now, the way we're going to look at that issue is by looking at a film that's been made called uh, uh, "Draw the Line." Uh, Time to Draw the Line. It's a film <clears throat> film that's been made by ex- very experienced documentary filmmakers Mandy King and Fabio Cavadini. Uh, I had a word with them. They're... they're uh, Work has been shown around the country, but uh, it's now available through Ronan Films and uh, they're directing it to schools and the general public to give a a clear understanding of the history leading up to this particular uh, lack of uh, ethical behaviour on the the side of the Australian government, which is completely opposite to the general view of the Australian public. But anyway, I had a word with them and... uh, it's fascinating. We re- revisit a very live issue that's going on at the moment. Uh, I, uh, following on from that, I'm going to chat with uh, Stephen Langford, hopefully. Stephen Langford is a refugee activist, and uh, he took exception to Amanda Vanstone, who has got, believe it or not, a slot on RN, ABCRN. If you didn't think the... Uh, the takeover, the liberal takeover, the right-wing takeover of the ABC wasn't in full swing, then you will be 
disabused by uh, what Stephen found when he listened to Counterpoint on ABC Radio National with Amanda Vanstone, who had the audacity to say that uh, those who supported the rights of the refugee hostages on Manus Island and Nauru make her sick. Make me sick, she said. Anyway, Stephen took exception to this and then ran a campaign to make it uh, ABC aware that uh, the general public weren't necessarily uh, supportive of Amanda Vanstone's supporting of torture on Manus Island, which effectively is what the uh, UN Human Rights Section has dubbed many of the practices that are going on in Manus Island. Anyway, we're going to have a word with him to find out what progress he made in making it people aware at the ABC that they actually have uh, they actually have a uh, duty to uh, present uh, a broad range of opinions, not support and endorse uh, human rights abuse, as it were. Anyway, we're going to have a word with him. We're going to get an update from uh, Kelly Whitmore about... Uh, she's from the uh, she, uh, Homeless Persons Union. Uh, we're going to get an update on uh, what happened when uh, to, um, Mr Doyle from the uh, the Mayor of Melbourne and his Team Doyle on the uh, council... Uh, decided that they were going to uh, not ban homelessness but ban homeless people from the city centre. Now, it caused a huge uproar amongst not just the homeless people but, of course, the public, general public, had a word about it as well. And uh, it uh, there was a major meeting, there were uh, responses, and then all of a sudden nothing seems to have happened. Well, we're going to find out from Kelly what the... Uh, actual uh, outcomes so far have been this is the week that was is following and we've got Humphrey this week The Green Left Weekly annual comedy debate with Rod Quantock is on again Saturday June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall MC extraordinaire Rod Quantock will host two teams of comedians debating whether fake news is real news Comedians include Sean Bedlam, Gabe Hogan Shirley Hood, Kirsty Mack, Morvan Smith, and Pauline Fartson, Hellchild. The Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate, Saturday, June the 17th at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner Sydney Road and Dawson Street, Brunswick. Doors open at 6.30pm. For bookings, go to trybooking.com forward slash QAEN or call 9639 8622. That's 9639 8622, a 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And as I said, we're going to follow up the East Timor, Timor-Leste issue, Australia's problem with drawing the line. Uh, and uh, we're doing it through a chat that I had with Mandy King, filmmaker Mandy King and... Uh, Fabio Cavadini, uh, time to draw the line. Let them talk. Well, look, we've uh, had a long association with East Timor. Um, goes back, oh, well, actually to when I was a student. My first awareness of East Timor was triggered when the journalists were killed back in 1975. But uh, And since then, um, we actually have made documentaries about East Timor 
before or during the Indonesian occupation. And in fact, we were both involved in two different films that were the first to be independent films to be shown on Australian television. Um, and they made a significant impact, I think. And I guess this film really carries on from that. It stems from an idea of the one of the associate producers, Inez de Almeida, who we've also known for many years. It's important that Australians become more aware of an issue right on our doorstep uh, involving her country, Timor-Leste, and a non-existent border between our two countries. And that non-existent border makes up only 1.8% of our whole maritime border. So there's something, there's an anomaly there, and this film sort of drills down to see what the history is behind that anomaly and looking at the current situation as well. Now, it's interesting because uh, I noticed that... uh it's actually been financed from a grant from the Community Engagement Program of the Democratic Republic of Timor-Leste. And you point out yes. quite clearly that at Timor-Leste, people are very aware of the way the Australian government is dealing with the issue of sovereignty and uh, territory, the the sea border between the two countries, and that they must, in their generosity, think that it's it's a, a part, education is part of the issue. The Australian population doesn't understand. Is that right? Yes, I think so. I mean. Um I believe a couple of years ago now, Shanana Gushmao and other people from the government actually travelled around the countryside in their uh, in Timor Leste and brought the issue to the attention of their own population, so people were aware. And therefore, we find that actually Timorese, who many Australians would consider, you know, um, impoverished and not well educated, are, are way more well informed. Um, about this this issue than our own community, and uh, it just reflects not very well on us as a country. And uh, I think it's something that we this film hopes to, you know, change that situation so that uh, Australians can start to think about it. What what the implications? The Timorese fought for twenty five years. Sovereignty is a very very deep importance to them. I mean, they have lost so many people for this notion of nationhood. And uh, they also were so generous towards the Australians during the Second World War. Now, that's well known in Timor. Um, it's, re- it's very well known amongst veterans in Australia. Um, but that, that, that um, great um, you know, um, help that they gave back in the 1940s to the Australian commandos uh, during the Second World War, even that hasn't been repaid. So, you know, there's a lot of unfinished business between Australia, regards Australia's relationship with Timor-Leste. There's some pretty uh, compelling uh, points that you make in the film. In fact, what is it? One of the people that you speak to puts it quite bluntly that... uh, the Timor-Leste people have lost uh, 60,000 or so people from the Japanese incursion. They lost 200,000 in the uh, invasion over the 25 years that the Indonesians were there. And you also uh, very carefully and clearly show 
the uh, the bravery of the Timor Leste people for voting for their freedom from Indonesia. That I presume the Indonesians expected that they would do what the West uh, Papuans, in a way, were forced to do when they were given the so-called chance to do a referendum to uh, separate from Indonesia. Yeah, well, um, you know, that's, uh, it's not, you don't have to scratch the surface too deep to see um, the problems with the result of the referendum in West Papua all those years ago. Uh, and maybe that's what the Indonesians were imagining. And certainly there was a lot of intimidation and violence and destruction of property and disturbance of the population and murder and mayhem in 1999. Very intimidatory environment for people to decide to vote in favour of being an independent country, no doubt about it. There were a couple of elements in your film that I found uh, really quite fascinating. The complicity, The uh, what I was going to ask you was there appears to be two Australias, right? Uh, there's the group of people that quite calculatedly decided the uh, Australian connection was going to be all about oil and then the rest of us who appear to be quite clear about Australia's obligation to the East Timorese people. Yes, that's right. I mean, look, it's that classic divide, isn't it, between politics and the aims of uh, the power uh, and the aims of the general community and that great sense of friendship and appreciation and respect that we unendingly find amongst the Australian community towards our Timorese neighbours. That, unfortunately, yeah, isn't reflected by many of our politicians. But but it's interesting because it's, it's, it's much longer, it's got a much longer history than I think most people would really appreciate. The boundaries, because of the nub of it, the nub of the issue, of course, is that Australia has m- made deals with every other country around uh, that um, adheres to the general maritime uh, international, international. Uh, laws. laws, which is the halfway, the medium point, right? And uh, in the case of Timor, it had an, a fascinating history where because it had been a Portuguese state, uh, the, there was no deal made that, as you said, 1.8% of that line was not drawn, although all around it, it has been drawn. The Indonesians yeah, and the Australians made a deal. Yeah, well, I mean, that, uh, my name is Fabio, by the way. Yeah, g'day, Fabio. Um, g'day. Uh, look, um, basically, you know, the, this history of the oil goes back to 1956 already. There is maps already drawn up at the time uh, talking about the oil and the resources available and the leases, you know, to, to, to exploit this oil and so on. So Australia is well, well um, entrenched in, in the business of oil back then, you know, and it's been portraying this line since then, you know, and... Uh, and favouring uh, Indonesian or, or whatever that suits them to to um, to um, go forward with the business of uh, exploiting these resources and uh, and at the expenses of the Timorese people. Basically, that's yeah. the reality. Well, it's a terrible truth, isn't it? That in actual fact, that group of people, whoever that group of moneyed class people are in Australia, 
they actually, it was in their interests for Indonesia to invade uh, Timor-Leste. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, you know, if you look at the history of this country too, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you just have to look at uh, the indigenous people in this country, the way they treat it. You know, since uh, uh, the the day of invasion, they've been put down and they still put down today. You know, all of that is uh, due to the interest of the of these people to make more money and uh, appropriating the land and uh, and the resources that belong to this land, uh, wherever that is uh, farming or or, or 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 coal or oil or, or copper or gold, you name it. You know, we, this country has got uh, 55,000 abandoned mines. Non, non, they have never been um, um, uh, reconstituted, the, the, the land. You know, they've been just abandoned. Nothing has been done about it. So when you look at all of this history of this country, the way uh, different governments in power at the particular time they're behaving, uh, is, you know, is very telling. So, you know, really, <laughs> when you look at the Timor history is nothing really um, to be surprised, you know, and uh, it is shameful, really, to, to, to live in a country like Australia, you know, and to call ourselves Australian. It's like a young Timorese person that uh, we know, uh, he says, you know, I would be ashamed to, to call myself Australian when um, uh, I know that we allow uh, Timorese people to be killed and, and we're killing Timorese people, you know, and, uh, and be robbing of uh, their resources. You know? It was quite venal the way the um, before the uh, referendum and the f- uh, beginning of so- uh, freedom for the Timorese that the Australian government preempted it and withdrew Australia from its obligations to the international court. They knew. Yes, that was two months. That was two months, months. before Timor-Leste declared its independence and formed government. Now, how cynical and telling an act is that? Uh, why would you withdraw from international law two months before a country forms its own government if you weren't worried that that law was going to, um, you know, impede on your own resource ambitions? Uh, anyway, and that seems to have been played out since in the behaviour of the Australian government. Now, what we're talking about here is a chat with Mandy King and Fabio Cavadini, who have made a film called Time to Draw the Line, and it's about Australia's inability to uh, draw the uh, maritime boundary between uh, East Timor-Leste and Australia at the halfway, the medium point, which is the traditional uh, time-honoured, internationally agreed method by which you draw the line between uh, different uh, land masses. But of course... Australian interests are very interested in the gas and the oil in Timor-Leste. It's closer to Timor-Leste. Now, Time to Draw the Line is a uh, about 50 minutes long and it's targeted to uh, schools, isn't it? Well, it's targeted to the general community. Okay, and so people can get copies of it at Ronan Films. Uh, are there That's going to be great. some public um, screenings or do you...? There have been. Oh, t- uh, in every state in the country, there've been um, the, the cinema on-demand uh, technique of screenings. They're single um, event screenings. So there's yeah, there's um, at least another half a dozen on the books at the moment, and um, it's been screened in Darwin, Brisbane, Hobart, Melbourne, uh, Adelaide, Sydney, Perth. 
Oh, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So can yeah. people go online and find out about where they're going to be shown? Or, or in fact... Yes, they can just... Yeah, just go on demand.film. Okay, because then and, they could actually uh, have their own events as well. Yes, they can. Well, they can either do that through demand.film or through Ronan Films as the possibility of the community screenings option as well. Okay, and, and what... Oh, sorry. Sorry. One of the reasons why we, we did this, Demand uh, Film and, uh, and also uh, Ronan uh, distributing the film, is that... Uh, well, uh, it's the normal uh, procedure you do with documentary, but uh, also to be said is that uh, as far as, uh, as, as this moment, we haven't been able to convince any of the TV stations in this country to go for the film. Uh, and uh, it's now at the NITV, and hopefully they uh, see the light and they put it on. Um, but uh, ABC, uh, SBS, they all rejected it, you know, and it's quite... Uh, uh, telling also that, you know, and uh, and that's why the reason of the film existing too is that, uh, you know, we have to try to, to get this information out because people forget and people, they don't know what's going on because the, the media in this country is so obtuse and so narrow in the way they they, they uh, gathering the news and the, and the news that they, they're putting out and, and, and the films that they're acquiring and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we're so good uh, at having... Uh, uh, cooking programs now that they, they're coming out of your ears and your ass. Sorry, excuse me. They're, they're, they're I the, the truth. <laughs> but that is the truth, you know, and I mean, okay, you know, how much you can cook, you know. And, <laughs> but time. that is, uh, again, a reflection of this country, the way it goes, and the media is appalling, as bad as the, as the government. And that is including the ABC, mind you. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Uh, you know, they're just not there, they're just not there. Oh, if there is some skirmishes and somebody gets killed, oh yeah, then they do it. And it's becoming a sensational piece of a, a story, and that is the end of it. You know, use of a story. The, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way, you know. <laughs> well, well, actually, this is a huge scandal. I mean, uh, the, the, it's a scandal that uh, that's so obvious that if it was, uh, uh, you know, if it was a dog, it would bite you. You know, this business about uh, Australian uh, economic interests uh, uh, overthrowing its uh, uh, rationality and um, ethics is completely uh, shining through in this particular instance. And to give the ABC its due, Four Corners produced an excellent investigative program in 2014 about the alleged spying allegations where the Australian government is alleged to have sent ISIS operatives to Dili to record conversations in the government cabinet offices so that when in the middle of a negotiation. Maybe that's one of the reasons for why the ABC is being unpicked as we speak. (laughs) Yes, well precisely, that's right. So, look, I do recommend to anyone in the audience who's interested in this issue to go online on the ABC Four Corners archive and have a look at the 2014 program called Drawing the Line, very similar title to our own, uh, because it's an ongoing issue. But it's forensic in its analysis of what was going on um, now that those allegations became public uh, knowledge to the Timorese uh, government. Do you think there's a there's a strong instance of uh, 
the Australian government wanting to appear to be good fellows when in actual fact it's a veneer. Like one of the artists said that you were talking, there's this veneer of uh, being uh, ethical and good fellows and we're giving them uh, charity, we're giving them uh, aid, which is uh, minuscule in relation to... Compared to how much they rip them off from, yeah, off, that's right. You know, what, whatever they put in in, in aid is uh, it is minuscule. And that's why it was so revealing to us. Um, I don't know if, if your listeners uh, have seen it, but there's a piece of street art, and it's a kangaroo hopping and holding a little bucket which is dripping with oil written on it. And that that was uh, that piece of street art or political graffiti. Um, it's a, a Timorese artist, uh, original, and uh, it was, dates back to after the spying allegations became public and people were so angry, and he was angry too, and he decided to work out a way to sort of make an iconic image to tell that story. And there the Australian aid is a, a hopping kangaroo. That's the logo of the Australian government. So this is... You know, once again, the cleverness of the Timorese to say everything in a simple, bold uh, image like that, and which we have used in our film. What's going to happen? Do you think? I mean, how? Are the, what's the next uh, tactic that the uh, East Timorese, the Timor Leste, are going to employ to bring Australia to its uh, proper? Well, they did. Yeah, uh, negotiation. Well, look, there is what's called this. Compulsory Conciliation um, Commission hearings underway that's uh, under the UN mantle. Uh, they are ongoing until September this year where the findings of that commission will be handed down. This is why it's particularly important to people who have an interest in Timor or concern about this issue to look into how they can bring their feelings to the attention of Australian politicians. It appears as if the Australian government role in these negotiations is coming to light. They are pushing what's called a natural prolongation argument, whereby it claims that the continental shelf, which juts out into the Timor Sea almost or beyond three-quarters of the way towards Timor, should be declared Australia's maritime area. Uh, this is wholly unfair and outside and well beyond well-established international law. So people need to go on timfo.org. There's a petition there that they can sign or they can check out the timorcjustice.com website for more information and a letter to Julie Bishop. And as a, just to, to uh, um, reinforce this uh, line of uh, Australia uh, claiming that the... the um, continental shelf goes to Timor and possibly behind Timor, uh, as uh, uh, Ramasota said on his late speech, he said, oh, well, if that is the case, then Timor must be also Australia, or <laughs> vice versa, Australia yeah. could be Timor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for giving me your time. It's a pleasure, Annie, yeah. and all the best. And yeah. All the best to you too. Thank, Thank you very you. much. 
If you want to know more about this issue, it would be great to uh, have a look at Time to Draw the Line. It's a great documentary. It's uh, about uh, an hour long and it gives a uh, historical context to the entire uh, issue that's surrounding the Australian government's inability to front up and sign a uh, proper a proper uh, uh, agreement with East uh, Timor, Timor-Leste. There's a, in the process of uh, Timor-Leste has taken it to the next stage, which is an international court. If you want to know more about this, an update, go to Timor Justice online. You can find out more about this. There's a recommendation that uh, people write to their local members so that they don't forget that there are people in Australia who actually have a conscience. The 3CR annual radiothon is almost here. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. To donate, just call 03 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come. Radiothon 2017 3CR Radio for Change. Solidarity Breakfast Live show for the Radiothon is on June the 17th. Of course, our normal program time, 7.30 to 9am. Hopefully, we'll have a full complement of people. We'll go back and listen to some past events. Hopefully, you've been... uh, You've been enjoying the program and uh, you wish it to continue. So uh, save up every, as uh, the announcement said, uh, every small amount, uh, large amounts are happily received as well, but uh, small amounts, we love them. We'd love to hear from you as our listeners. It's your chance to give us a call. You might even get on air. You never know. We'll remember Bill as well. New illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR.
And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. And on the line, we've got uh, Stephen Langford. G'day, Stephen. How are you? Hi. Uh, hi, Annie. I'm well. Thank yeah. You. Now, you brought to my attention the uh, notion that uh, uh, actually RN is uh, centre point uh, that uh, showcases Amanda Vanstone uh, is, uh, was in your sights because of some of the things that she said on air. Yes. What was it yes. she said that made you so okay. cross? Well, I don't want to bore your, your listeners, but I could read the letter, the letter that I wrote to the ABC, anyone who would listen. Go on, go for it. Okay. Um, I attached a letter asking for the dismissal of Amanda Vanstone, who, co- who hosts Counterpoint on ABC RN, and I'll give reasons for this. I'd be grateful if you would respond to this, because I think the matter is most serious to whom it may concern. This afternoon, I listened to Counterpoint on ABC Radio National. On it, I heard the program's host, Amanda Vanstone, saying that the people who supported the rights of the refugee hostages on Manus Island and Nauru make me sick. I'd actually made a mistake, but anyway, that will come up later. Um, that's not the exact, the exact words that she said. The behaviour of the Australian government in keeping innocent people in indefinite detention on Manus and Nauru has been described by the United Nations as torture. In saying that she opposes the people who support the refugees on Manus and Nauru, she is in effect supporting torture. Amanda Vanstone has been an immigration minister and as such abused the rights of innocent people by locking them up for extended periods. It seems she has not changed her spots. I do not understand why she continues to receive public money to endorse the violation of human rights. It seems to me that the human rights have been more or less a dead letter on Radio National since Sandy McCutcheon left the ABC. Even if ABC Radio National is not exactly a flag bearer on human rights, it seems to me that endorsing torture on Radio Radio National is a bridge too far. I'm calling on the ABC to dismiss Amanda Vanstone. So did you get any response to this letter? I actually actually have from um, my old, not exactly a friend, but Kirsten McLeish, uh, Head of Audience and Consumer Affairs, and, um, uh, okay, dear Mr. Langford, thank you for your letter of 8th of May 2017. The chairman has asked me to respond on his behalf. In accordance with the ABC's complaints, um, complaint handling procedures, your correspondence has, has referred to, um, audience, have been referred to audience and consumer affairs. A unit, uh, sorry, there's a, a phone ringing in the background. I don't, anyway, sorry concentrate on this. Um, the role of audience in consumer affairs is to investigate complaints alleging that the ABC content has breached the ABC's editorial standards. We believe that your correspondence may be um, referring to the, to the soapbox Conspicuous Compassion segment on Radio National's Counterpoint on 8th of May. During the segment, presenter Amanda Vanston did not, did not advocate torture or endorse the violation of human rights. She made no comment about the uh, rights of refugees on Manus Island or, or, or Nauru, and she did not suggest that supporters of refugee rights make me sick. Rather, she put forward her own views on conspicuous com- compassion. This is quoting her. Mm. Okay. So what is it that they say she said? Okay, this is it. I would argue that many of the people who are concerned about Manus Island and Nauru fit into this category. They're happy to tell you that they care. They don't actually do anything about it. They want to use the uh, misfortune of others 
to promote themselves as being nice guys. That's what conspicuous compassion does. It, do, it uses the misfortune of someone else to promote yourself as a good guy. These people are repulsive. Oh, isn't that fascinating that uh, the ABC should uh, give an ex-liberal immigration minister the yes. right to be able to say something like that? It's dangerously close to propaganda, I would say. Well, yes, I, I think so. And you need to, I think, look at the whole picture. I, I do encourage people to have a look at Amanda Vanstone's actual history. Uh, especially in the year 2005 when she was min- she was Minister for Immigration, uh, Indigenous Affairs and Multiculturalism for, uh, for, from, for about four years, 2003 to 2007. Um, and and, she, and it, the worst things happened under her, like the Cornelia Rao affair, the Vivian Alvarez Solon. Do you remember the Cornelia Rao? Yeah, yeah, thing? I understand. I remember this, yeah. yeah. And... The, um, Uh, For people who don't remember this, Cornelia Rowe was an Australian citizen who was befuddled, picked up by uh, police in Queensland, I think it was, and then Mm -hmm. because they couldn't understand what her language was, they put her into uh, immigration detention. And uh, and it was through this that a whole range of quite appalling uh, personal abuses were exposed because, of course, it turns out that she was an Australian citizen and that uh, her relatives were trying to find her. That's it. And and also Robert uh, Jovicic, who I believe was sent to Bulgaria. He'd spent nearly all his life here. He was sent to Bulgaria um, because he'd served a prison sentence. Yeah, because he had a a drug background, yes. That's a terrible life, you know. Um, So for, for someone like that to pontificate to to us about what we should care about. I mean, what can you do for the people on, on Nauru and Manus? Nick McKim has just been there. He's not allowed in. So, I mean, it's a, a, bit, it's, it's a bit of a funny thing to get um, uh, worked up about people caring rather than people not being allowed in to see what's actually going on. It, it's, it's the whole thing. The ABC is giving itself a, a clean bill of health. There's simply the the Code of Practice 2011. And I know this um, this complaint to the ABC, unless I'm much mistaken, it won't get anywhere as a complaint. But I feel that if there's enough public pressure, that may get somewhere. Mm. I, yeah. I think it's completely unacceptable that, that um, uh, Amanda Vanstone has this position at the ABC. Uh, I, I don't really know how she got it. In two, that was in 2013 she became the full-time presenter. I well, it it's, too... the, it's the uh, lobsters in a hot pot of water. Slowly but surely, uh, the whole notion of fairness is being killed and washed out of uh, the it. public broadcaster. Yeah, there's no mention of, the, of, of human rights in, in, in the ABC charter or any of or, or this code of practice that I'm looking at. There's nowhere. So, I mean, you could have anyone. It's like apartheid South Africa. You could have anyone from the government getting on there and, and spouting anything. And it's their opinion, perfectly valid. Okay, it's abusing human rights. Who cares? doesn't matter. Thanks, for, actually be, thanks yeah. for bringing this to our attention, Stephen. Thank you well, very much. Yes. Yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to know what other people think of this. I mean, I'm getting a bit hot under the collar about it. I think it's really wrong. I think it's wrong in the first place that she should have been brought in to supposedly balance 
some sort of left-wing influence at the ABC, which I, I can't perceive you, myself. You can't find it? I can't find it. <laughs> I can't I mean, find it either. I mean, there are bigger problems. There's, there's a very good uh, um, paper being written by a bloke called Kim Dalton about the ABC, about the general shutting out of, of documentary filmmakers and so on. Well, Kim Dalton one... used to be used to work for them. He also used yeah, to yeah. run an open channel, yes. just for anybody yeah. who's got a long memory. That, that's it, uh, and that's very interesting what he's been saying. But one thing I'd like to say, but it's been going on for as long as I can remember, if both major parties agree on something, it cannot be news. So locking up refugees for God knows how long is not news because both the parties agree on it. So it doesn't matter how how big a human rights something abuse something is. It doesn't matter. Back when I was much more active than I am now on, on East Timor, um, because both parties agreed that East Timor was part of Indonesia, that's how they would refer to it. So it doesn't matter what civil society thinks. It doesn't matter what international law says. East Timor, when on the few occasions they would refer to it, was part of part of Indonesia. When it wasn't, you know, it, it's. It, you remember when the, the Nauru files came out um, a, a, a couple of years ago, or yeah. one or two years ago? A very brave person on Nauru brought these files out. There had been reports written by guards, the guards on Nauru, and he thought that that the um, they'd get good coverage because because there were terrible abuses were taking place, neglect and abuse and all sorts of horrible things. Almost nothing on the ABC, because both parties agree that locking up people for indefinite periods, innocent people, is fine. So so I, I, this bravery of, of this man who brought the Nauru files out, um, uh, he, he got it publicised in other ways, but certainly not through the ABC. The ABC doesn't care about human rights abuses. Well, thank and you. That, uh, yes, David? Uh, can, can I just say yeah. one more thing? If we need one change, it's for human rights to be written into the... That's, it's really minimal. We need lots of changes but to be written into the, to the ABC Charter. Yeah, well, that would be you a know. fascinating uh, step forward. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Thank you for pointing this out. Thanks for talking to us today. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, honey. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, testing. <laughs> okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C. Well, isn't that fascinating that uh, uh, the Liberal Party have so brazenly allowed itself to have soapboxes on the so-called even-handed and I have to say, absolutely uh, a national treasure, the RNABC, but uh, it goes right across the country. If you ever live in isolated parts of Australia, you'll know that uh, whatever your political complexion is, how important it is to be able to get the uh, ABC RN, but it's obviously been completely suffused with uh, a quite... uh, 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 unmediated opinion from uh, one side of the political spectrum. It's pretty frightening stuff. Uh, Thanks for Stephen Langford for pointing out his uh, personal uh, uh, courage to uh, write letters and push forward, push back at the ABC's change. But your ability to uh, push back is to be part of our Radiothon, which is coming up. Uh, we'd love you to donate to keep uh, the radio 
for change on the air. Uh, you can do that in many ways. But uh, let's move on to other aspects of the uh, of po- politics we, that we've brought to you over the time. Uh, we we followed the uh, uh, Robert Doyle, the uh, Melbourne Mayor's decision to try and tidy up the uh, city centre by getting rid of homeless people who are refusing to hide behind the uh, in the dark. They want people to see that there's actually an issue of, in homelessness. Homelessness is an issue. Uh, it's not that uh, there might be uh, a bit of mess around. It's actually the fact that society is actually not pulling its weight uh, when it comes to providing what is a human right which is having shelter. Now, uh, recently, the uh, Melbourne City Council pushed uh, by Robert Doyle and his team because he's got a block, a voting block on the council. We're trying to change bylaws uh, to uh, basically uh, remove what they would have considered to be an unhealthy eyesore of homeless people in the main drag, in the uh, drags of the uh, city centre. Uh, but uh, after a lot of uh, noise, uh, there appears to have uh, the noises died down, and uh, we thought we'd find out what actually happened after there was public uh, pushback regarding those bylaw changes. Now we spoke to Kelly Whitmore, who's from the Homeless Persons Union, to find out what was the outcome. My name is Kelly. I'm from the Homeless Persons Union, Victoria. Okay, Kelly. Uh, recently, we've been watching the uh, uh, Doyle from the Melbourne City Council pushing to get uh, homeless people off the street, but there's been a lot of backlash, hasn't there? Yeah. So they, after they had the vote, where Team Doyle voted to bring in bylaw changes, they then went to a period of public submissions over the course of about a month and then they released a report detailing um, everything that um, had been um, communicated to the council from the public and something like 98 or 99 percent of the public were overwhelmingly against them introducing um, those changes. Okay so now that there is word that they haven't made a public announcement but that they're taking a different tack. Because of the public backlash, so to speak, I have heard a rumour that um, they're not going to go down the path of introducing the bylaw changes because they are so um, uh, popularly, um, what's the word, the, pop, the, the, the public is against it. Go through the laws again that they were expecting to change. So um, they wanted to change the definition of camping in local bylaws. So at the moment, the bylaw states that camping is defined as either being in a tent or being in a car or some other such structure. Well, they wanted to strike out those definitions and just say you cannot camp. And so lawyers and us in the union and the public were concerned that the, um, the definition was going to be too broad and it was going to um, include people that were just sleeping on the street, for example. So that was one thing they wanted to change. And the other thing they, they wanted to bring in um, a, a, a fine for people that um, had stuff there. That's right, they were going to confiscate people's belongings and that if it was left unattended and then people would have to pay a fee for its uh, retrieval. 
So what they've, they, you think is going to happen, or what they haven't actually publicly announced, but to save face, they're going a different route? I have a feeling, or I've heard a rumour, that um, because the public is against it, um, they're not going to go down that track. And what they might do is have a trial period of about a month where they will allow people to have perhaps something like two bags and a swag. Which is something that they've happened in Sydney, right? Apparently so. That's how it is in Sydney. Um, so they perhaps might trial that and work with services to get that working. But I don't know if they've offered people funding, for example, to put the rest of their stuff in storage or whether they're going to install lockers somewhere. So if this is the track they're going to go down, it doesn't really address the fact that people have all their belongings with them and what are they going to do with the stuff that um, comes over, two bags and a swag. And where will they get the swag from? Because they're actually quite expensive. I know certain um, health services in town um, uh, do provide them, but um, I'm really not sure how what widespread um, they are. So It's a watching brief. Does that mean wait and see? Yes, watch this space. <laughs> Along to the Pacific Connections Expo on Thursday, the 8th of June, from 9:30 a.m. to 2:30 p.m. at 6 Helene Street, RD. The Pacific Connections Expo is a day of community sharing and networking with stores and performances. We welcome all Pacific and New Zealand and other multicultural communities, and there will be free sausages on the day. For more details on the June 8th event, as well as storeholder registrations, go to Pacific Connections Expo Facebook event. A 3CR supporter. annual Radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is Radio for Change. From June the 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au 3CR Radio for Change. That's right, our annual Radiothon. I was talking to someone the other day. They said to me, why can't you just have a radio station? Why not? Well, of course, we all put our efforts in to bring you lots of news and go out there and find out what's going on in the community. And uh, in order to do that, we uh, have a core staff. We don't have, uh, well, one of the reasons for why uh, having people uh, donate makes it possible for us to actually share news and views which are not manipulated and massaged by particular power interests because the power interests that we're interested in are you, the community. So uh, we're trying to get your voices out there, but uh, not only that, to actually tease out some of the issues that uh, need to be uh, teased out so that we can all make wise decisions for the future of our community rather than the uh, profit motives of particular uh, very powerful small groups of people that are quite clearly 
overrepresented and influencing everybody's lives without many people being aware that that's actually the reason for why the community is going in particular directions. It's for the interests of a certain group of private people. In fact, it's quite interesting, the New South Wales government wants to privatise their buses, but uh, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, there was an article in one of the mainstream newspapers outlining how much money the uh, Victorian government could uh, return to the coffers if it were to sell off the uh, private, uh, the public uh, bus services to private interests. My immediate question is, who is the private capitalist interest that is interested in building the notion that uh, selling off uh, Metropolitan and other bus lines is of use to them, to their profit, as opposed to the general public? It's quite interesting. Who is it behind the count of the uh, curtain that's manipulating the message to say that privatising the bus services is a good idea? I'm just asking. I was just wondering. And that's the sort of question that a place like 3CR would follow up. So we'd really appreciate it if you decided to uh, put a bit of money towards keeping 3CR on air. Solidarity Breakfast's live show, which it always is live, really, uh, except for next week. It's going to be a pre-record, so don't ring up, just listen. Uh, June the 17th is our live show for the Radiothon. Ring up, we'd love to hear from you. The number, of course, when you're going to ring up on that day is 0394198377 because that's the uh, station number for uh, talking to us. Uh, You might even be able to get on air. But before then, more important, this is the week that was. A week solidarity breaking team listener when that madness in Manchester, based on the live and let live, love thy neighbour theology of religion, unless you're not one of us, a non-whatever, an infidel, die and let die. Imagine what a mess the world would be in but for the compassionate overlay of religion across the centuries. Uh, Apart from the slaughters of one religion against another and against each other when heretics arise by questioning some minor point in whatever revelatory tome or tomes that lot passionately quote. Nations putting the same God in a bit of a bind by praying to the same God for their righteous cause to prevail as they go about slaughtering each other. Although some seemingly insoluble conflicts may just need the timely God-given Messiah to intervene and prove they are anything but insoluble, bringing us, as we will see, to, well, haven't things just kept looking up and up and up for U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, as he denies what he confirmed, then confirms what he denied, then denies what he confirmed he denied, then confirms what he denied he confirmed, then, well, it goes on and on. It leaves us dizzy while his media spokespeople explain why he denied what he confirmed he denied and confirmed what he denied he confirmed he denied, often in the same press conference as the confirmed denial and denied, denied confirmation changes mid-conference. Why, in that Middle East bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, Donald denied all those confirms about evil Islam and told them Islam had been the biggest victim of terrorism. In sheer numbers, the deadliest toll has been on the innocent people of Arab and Muslim and Middle Eastern nations. 
thanks to our perpetual invasions, it sort of kick-started with Richard the Lionheart, whoever he was, and we have done our best to honour his glorious Christian legacy. Good. Very, very good. Even the Lord Rupert of Wapping's in headline couldn't ignore the consistency. Trample the poor backflips. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. But the Messiah bit. A while ago, Donald displayed his in-depth grasp of the issue by declaring achieving peace between Zion and the Palestinian non-state non-people should be easy, very, very easy. He would do whatever is necessary to achieve peace and direct quotes that I can't compete. It may not be as difficult as people have thought over the years. Don't we have to love Donald's modesty alongside our existing admiration for his intelligence? Not as difficult, maybe, maybe as simple as providing a, a trample the poor tower in both Tel Aviv and East Jerusalem. Oh, no, no, that would only create more problems, as Zion would insist the latter has nothing to do with the non-state, non-people, because it is in the Zion capital. But we can be sure Donald will find an easy solution to that minor hiccup. He managed to assist the peace process by flogging a hundred billion plus in merchants of death merchandise to that bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi, which the Secretary of US of World State Rex Killerson said would make a major contribution to world peace and showed how the US of and Saudi both love peace. And we can be sure the people of Yemen must be taking to the streets to celebrate when they heard Saudi would be unloading another hundred bill of peace on their land. In his quest for peace, Donald has been forced to chastise the US of the world NATO peace-loving lot for not spending enough on-train killer merchandise to guarantee their offence, sorry, defence. Last week gave the I can keep a secret award of the week to that media guy, that Sean guy, for declaring for security reasons he couldn't say where the intelligence came from, but the US of had a close relationship with Zion. But Donald made a belated run at stealing the award by declaring in Zion, I did not mention Zion to the Ruskies. And didn't Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, look thrilled when Donald offered that spontaneously when Benjamin thought the shake hands and smile at the camera's photo op was over? I did not mention Zion to the Ruskies, presumably while casually telling the Ruskies a few chit-chat pieces of high-security intelligence. And Donald's idea of high-security is reaching to a top shelf to drag it down and show it to whoever he's talking if his staccato, non-sentence style passes the definition of talk. Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country joined the queue, was as thrilled as Benjamin when US of Media published what Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country considered classified intelligence. In all these cases, of course, we use the word intelligence loosely. Considered, and Donald said he would investigate how this happened because he displays a deep understanding of what classified intelligence means, as he states every day on his Today's Secret Intelligence radio show with Donald Trample the Paw. And naturally, they all know about these things, complain about evil countries spying on them or interfering in their affairs because of their own experience in spying on everyone else and interfering in their affairs. Although, let's qualify that. 
the USIB is righteously, religiously distressed that Russia may have interfered in its election in order to install a mobile security leak, because we all know the USIB would never interfere in another country's elections or internal politics. It stations military bases all over the world to protect that neutrality. For instance, it is hoping there may be an election in Venezuela shortly to get rid of the evil commie government, but only as a neutral observer. Like the Palestinian non-people back here, we too suffer the presence and nuisance of a non-people, the terra nullius non-people, who insist they should be treated as people when they would be even more non-people if they hadn't abused our hospitality, our generosity to their savage, pagan, neolithic lifestyle and survived the numerous attempts at compassionate genocide. Suppose the only consolation is a day at the footy wouldn't be nearly as exciting if the genocide had succeeded. Fifty years ago today, we were good enough to acknowledge they could non-exist and the Canberra lot could make laws giving them some non-exist non-rights, but now they want a bloody treaty as if attempted compassionate genocide was a war or something. It's bad enough they want to call our great national True Blue Aussie Day, well, along with Train Killer Day, our great national day, Invasion Day, as if. Although calling it war may open the door for Rex Killerson and the USR merchants of death to flog us a few billion, well, a few more billion train killer merchandise so we can show how much we love peace and coexistence just like the Saudis and Zion. Billions to train kill for peace, the proper use of taxes, good debt, although who needs taxes? Well, taxes from the filthy rich, because the indigent can't avoid them. Who needs when the filthy rich can decide to give a bit of what they avoided back and remove from the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector the decision on where they'll be spent? A journo asked Fattus Profits Q Mineral Supremo Twitty why he spent heaps opposing the mining tax when he just loves helping the public purse. I couldn't have made this super generous, what a wonderful man I am donation, if I had to pay tax as well. He explained the benefits of not paying tax. In fairness, the disadvantage for the workers who can't avoid tax is that they can't decide on what it will be spent, but can rest assured it won't be wasted on anything that might help them, all of which creates bad debt. And billions on merchants of death merchandise makes them feel so secure. Wasn't it heartwarming to hear Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, eulogise the generosity of the filthy rich caring employer class, whose top 200 or however many was announced yesterday with poor Gina slipping to third. But congratulations to Anthony Heezer Pratt for his big win, earned by his own talent all those years ago, the night his dad, Big Dick, impregnated his mum, Jeannie, on one of the nights Big Dick happened to be in that bed. Doesn't the publication of the big winners inspire us to get out there, listener, and strive to make the list next year? Although in our case, when we try it, they arrest us for highway robbery. Speaking of dads and that tax fraud business, well, the tax fraud business which got sprung, what a pity Dad, the Deputy Commissioner investigating tax fraud, just missed noticing what the kids were up to. Father's Day lunch promises to be fun, fun, fun at their place. 
Finally, defeat in the Socialist Party government up north in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land, as the left... <laughs> why do I laugh when I say that? The left and the right fight over whether to give the Adani the climate coal lot a total royalty holiday or a partial one. Not sure which side argues which, and all those wonderful jobs at lifting the poor out of poverty coal could be achieved with a little bit of help. We build the railway, no taxes, no royalties, and... Wait, wait, hang on. Report out of India this week, where the coal is essential to lift the poor out of poverty. Solar power is now cheaper than fossil power. Huh? With all that sun, it's not exactly a surprise, but... but... No, I don't get it. Still, we need all those jobs, and Adani, the climate, will also save Wyala, which will provide those rails for the rail with our money. They're all generosity. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. How are you, Humphrey? I'm very well on this almost winter morning and it's only 100 days to the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital. That's our subject yet again and we're going to link it as again in with the continuing implosion in the global corporates and capitalism. And the usefulness of that, of course, is that uh, what uh, Marx was uh, dealing with in Das Kapital was actually, uh, I mean, it's a good way of looking at how capitalism actually operates. I think that's the important point. I think if you're going to get people to spend the time studying Das Kapital, um, then we have to be able to show people that you can learn things about what's happening now. Now, that's what I want to try and do this morning. And I had a bit of an experience of this recently in talking to a couple of people, um, political activists, they're good in the union, they've been, you know, around issues of, of, of organising for peace and against war, all of those things. All those worthy and things. they never said, sorry. All those worthy things. All those worthy things, but they've never opened and they've never attempted even to read Marx's Capital. You know, they're quite sympathetic to the idea, but, you know, they've never done it. And I said to them, you know, well, why not? And they said, well, it's 150 years old. Hmm. Now, one of them is a research scientist. And that mentality, I think, is pretty deep in the the scientific community. It's almost, well, if the research paper's 10 years old, then it's out of date. So what well, in their world, of course, that's true, but not in this world, is it? Well, it's not in this world, and it's not even entirely true in the in the physical sciences either. But that's another. We won't go there for the moment. Um, and you know, so I thought, you know, but he has been reading books by contemporary Marxists about contemporary capitalism, and I said, well, you know, oh, that's certainly better than reading the Fin Review, but you know, it's still you can still get things, important things, as I keep doing, by studying what Marx was saying about what the dynamics of the system are. And, I mean, if you look up the index to, um, you know, to, to any of the editions of Capital, you're not going to find words like, uh, well, you know, 
uh, such as the internet or um, any of the contemporary corporations. I mean, that's not what's there. You're not going to it for bits of information of that kind. What you're going to it for are what are the inherent, inescapable dynamics of the system. Um, why does it behave the way that it did? How did it come into existence in the way that it did? And how much of that continues to explain why it behaves in the way that it does? And so we began to talk about that. And one of the things that came up, of course, was very promptly about the contemporary world is that the concentration, the centralisation of the control of it, otherwise perhaps known as the beginnings of monopolising, uh, that's what Marx points to. Marx clearly, I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's so obvious that in order for capitalism to get going from the 18th century onwards, it had to... We all know that it had to accumulate capital. But yeah. the accumulation process meant that those capitals had to get centralised. That's right. That so, it, could, so it's always going to be about monopoly. It's always going to be about that tendency towards it. Um, you know, and the other tendency, of course, is there will be competition between them. And when you get two big corporations like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, then they fight each other even more intensely. And sometimes some of the corporations will get together and they'll form a cartel and they'll price fix, mentioning Mr. Pratt by name. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, we're going to say. Um, and, um, you know, the richest but, man. Well, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, could we all be rich? You now, all we have to do is go around stealing money from every old age pensioner in, in Australia, which is what he did. Uh, but we won't, we won't go there. We won't go there. Either. We won't go there. Uh, we won't go there. Um, but this process of how they have to get larger and larger individually for the whole system to get larger and larger. Um, and there's a real operating connection between those. Marx makes it very powerfully in, in his discussion about the 1840s. He said, if capitalism had had to wait for one person to get rich enough to build a railway line from Edinburgh into London, we never would have had one. No, that's exactly right. It's only possible because of the joint stock company. That's right. Uh, where capitalists get together uh, and pool their money in these ways. And it's that process. So in talking uh, to my friend uh, about this, I was saying, look, you know, these dynamics, which are so much a part of contemporary capitalism, and I'll give some examples of that in a moment, uh, to what's, as to what's been happening in the last few years as a result of the implosion, um, you know... This is laid out in the chapters in Capital. It is extraordinary when you read it to think, I could be reading about now. You could just take these paragraphs out and say, put, you know, you'd have to put other names in, but you know, that process is there. So, 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 so Marx would have said that uh, the implosion was an inevitability. Oh, well, an implosion. He's very careful always to say, you have to examine the conditions of time and the situation and the particular economy in which they're happening. You can't predict that it will happen in September 2008. What you can say is that the dynamics of the system make it that these kinds of things are inevitable in there. And it's Marx, perhaps, as much as anybody else in the 19th century, who points to the importance of what we might otherwise refer to as an industrial cycle. Um, 
perhaps sometimes called the credit cycle or the you know uh, the ways in which capitalism rises and falls over perhaps seven to ten years uh, he's very he's, he's really fascinated by this because he believes and I think absolutely rightly that that the strength of the system is that it is unstable that mm. it is this great dialectical paradox if you like that the system grows because it creates the conditions in which it might seize up. And when it seizes up, those conditions are then used to cleanse out the system so that it can start to grow again. Oh, Whereas the standard bourgeois economic view is this, that the whole system is fundamentally stable, but there are just these little bumps that happen. Oh, right. Whereas Marx's view is that it is the dynamics of the system that makes it go forward. And because of the dynamics, of course it's going to fall into hole every now and again. But so to, so know, like you say it. about sustainable capitalism is a practical impossibility. It's sustainable at a political level because they control state power. But sustainable economically, sustainable in the sense that they do not have to plunder the wealth of nature, these are the things that Marx pointed to. I mean, Marx spends a lot of time talking about how one of the drivers in capitalism is the plundering of the wealth of nature. Um, this didn't come with the, with the environmental movement of the 1960s. This was back there um, in what Marx and Engels keep being concerned about. But... What they do with these resources and the way in which they organise it is through the development of a, of a big financial system, uh, a big industrial system. Uh, they have to bring large numbers of working people together and that in turn, of course, creates uh, what Marx would also call a social contradiction. That is, when you bring more people together, they realise what their collective strength is. Well, of course, and that's right. So, of course, not only could you not have built the railway, but you could have also not have had unionism. Centralisation of capital is the crux of Bukharin's and Lenin's identification of latest stage of capitalism, which they called imperialism. Yeah, Can, yeah. I mean, the reason they called it imperialism is because the empire centralises and controls everything. You know, so, you know, that that, that 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 word is not so much about what's going on in the third world. It's about what's happening at home and how those metropolitan economies throughout, you know, well, say between England and France and, and Germany, how they all in from the 1870s onwards um, began to compete and to integrate with each other. And it's, it's, it's those things that, that you begin to see there and that they're the things. I mean, in a, in, you know, I mean they're now at a, at a level of intensification that, you know, that, <laughs> that, that writing about them in 1916, 100 years ago, you couldn't have believed that they would have got to the, to the kind of points that they have. But, I mean, I mean... These are some of the real drivers, and we just make—I may just make a little point that you, you know—to take up what you said about how—I how, mean, how answer the question: How is it that that, that there's a crisis in the system? How can that be, you know, in any way? You know, what kind of that? Well, how is it going to improve the system in any kind of way? And. If you look at what happens in Australia in the 1930s, we used to have two iron and steel producers. In the Depression, of course, 
the demand went down and only one of them survived, and it was BHP as the big Australian. And in every depression, what you see is you have this cleaning out of the smaller firms and sometimes the inefficient larger ones as well. And at the end of it, the system itself, those corporates that survive, are the stronger ones. So that it's able to go on for another 7, 10 or 20 years, being able to expand out of that. So there's a real connection between the purging of the system and its ability to pick up and, and, to, and, and, to, and to move into a, a, a kind of further stage of, of real capital accumulation. Um, I'll just remind our listeners. Oh, yeah, no, I'll just remind our listeners that they're on Solidarity Breakfast, yeah, and yeah, uh, we we're talking to Humphrey McQueen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now we're not the only ones who are concerned about this. We <laughs> have some strange allies. The Chicago Boys have come on board. <laughs> now, now the Chicago Boys are notorious for what they were doing in Latin America with the economies there and around the world going and saying, let the economy rip, let capitalism go free, let there be no controls, and as they get bigger and stronger and more monopolised, then this is going to be, this is the same as you would call free trade. So you're saying that they were the hippies of the capitalist world? They were at that stage, (laughs) you know, in the worst way. But now they of all people, are saying, hang on, as this monopolisation has got more intense, it's meaning there's no price competition, that prices are staying up. This is a real problem for the whole of the capitalist economy. Um, now, of course, they... You know, so what you're saying about, is that the dynamic's gone? Well, that's... I mean, in a sense, what every capital tries to do for its own survival is to is to put an end to that competitive dynamic within the system. Oh, it's that interesting. I mean, well, of course, that's what the whole function of the of cartels and price fixing was about. That's what Mr. Pratt was up to. That's what they all try and get up to. But the system, in many ways, won't allow them to continue to do that. That these other drivers come along. Well, it um, sort of sounds like capitalism is going to commit suicide. Oh, uh, no, um, that, you know, that they aren't going to do because one of the things that holds them together, and I think we've got to keep reminding ourselves of this, is that they have this other great force of support because they control state power. Right. Uh, that even when they get into serious trouble uh, in an economic way, they still have the ability through the armed forces and their security agencies and all those things to hang on and to shift the burden, and this is a very important point economically, they shift the burden on to the working people and the poor. The the public. And we have to pay. That's Um, right. No matter how big the mistakes they make are, they're able to shift these across to us. Now, what we see now is in the last 10 years, indeed perhaps the last 20 years in some way, more of this concentration, more of this monopolising. You know, I mean, people talk about, oh, there's all these start-ups happening. <laughs> well, I mean, what is intriguing, and I've only just, you know, come upon this little fact, the number of new start-ups today is the same as it was in the 1970s. Ah, uh, interesting. It's fallen back, way back to there. And... If you look at the um, 
you know, we're talking about the... The stock the really, exchange. You know, well, well, there's the stock exchange. I mean, the number of listed companies on the New York Stock Exchange is half what it was 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, interesting. You know, um, and so all of these, all, all of these little indicators there. I mean, one of the other indicators is that 20 years ago, the stock market valuation, which is you know pretty fraudulent anyway, but it's not so bad if you make a comparison across time. It was about equal to the gross domestic product of the United States. Mm. It's now at 136 percent. So it's, it's, it's gone up by a third in the last 20 years. This sense again of the centralisation of here. Now, Marx, of course, wasn't in the business of sitting around, with a, you know, in any way trying to read um, the kind of future out of the bottom of a teacup. Yeah, he, he wasn't a horse racing man. He wasn't in that sense at all. Engels used to go, um, you know, there was Engels who used to go um, out with the... I mean, uh, he would ride a horse. He came because when the revolution came, <laughs> the workers would need someone to lead the cavalry. <laughs> and, the, and the aristocrats had all the horses, so it was his duty to go out horse riding so he'd be able to lead the cavalry, as he'd done, I might say, uh, in, in, the, in the revolutions in Germany in the late 1840s. So he was serious about this question of who, are, who controls state power. But in terms of predicting what was going to happen, it's really the dynamics that are, that are there that you will take. When you sit down to, to really read and to study capital, I, I mean, I always advocate, I've been advocating all this time we've been talking about it over the last year or so, you've got to go slowly. Um, the notion that you can just sort of pick up capital, okay, it's a thousand pages, that's a lot, and that you can read, you know, kind of a hundred pages a day and you're over in, you know, well, 10, 12 days or something. Well, you can, but you won't have learned anything. The slower you go, uh, the more you're going to take away. And sometimes, I mean, you know, you, you know I mean, sometimes it'll take you the best part of an hour to unpick all of the ideas and the complications that Marx is talking about in the, in the course of one long paragraph. Mm. Because the complexity that he presents is the complexity of the capitalist system. It is so complex. Uh, there are so many cross... You know, that all of those dynamics are running against each other in some ways. And you can't just understand that by skimming across the top of the page. So but what you're saying is that you can... Years. You can um, grow your brain if you... Well, you can indeed, and you have to, because, I mean, it's vitally important for us if we're going to plan a political activity to know what the enemy's up to. I mean, any commander who goes into battle, and that's what you do in the class struggle, you've got to think, what does the enemy have to do in order to survive? And if you don't understand the dynamics of capitalism, you aren't even, you aren't even in the beginning of the game. Um, I mean, in some ways, they don't know either. Um, I mean, that's a bit of an advantage we have. They don't have a full understanding of how their system works either. But if you don't have any of it, and the number of people who tell me that, oh, yes, I'm a Marxist, and they've never really, you know, studied any of Marxist economics, and I'm sad to say many of them don't know that in September is the 150th anniversary of Das Kapital. So one of the little jobs of 3CR 
is to is to is to be able to spread these thoughts around. Yes, that's uh, right. And as the you know, as as the centralisation of the control of the mass media in Australia is about to get even more into. I know it's incredible, isn't it? You know that three CR and anything we can do to get a real understanding to get beyond the superficialities of you know there's the you know I mean if, you know, I mean on the ABC you know yeah. every half hour there's on their news channel they'll tell you what the stock exchange report is mm. do they tell you what the dynamics of the system are do they tell you what we've just said about the half the number of corporations do you, do you ever get that as part of the stock exchange report? Of course you don't. No, actually, you interestingly get... enough, a person I knew was always really infuriated by the person that they used to have on the ABC telling you about what the ebb and flow of the stock exchange was because that person who does that on the ABC actually has a pecuniary interest in the direction of the information that he puts forward. Well, of course they do. <laughs> I mean, it is very rare. I mean, very, very rare for a financial journalist not to be up to their ankles, at least, in the, in the buying and selling of shares. That's Sometimes right. Sometimes they actually get caught at it. No, that's you know? right. You know, but, I mean, you know, the, the, my old friend Tom Fitzgerald, who was financial editor of the Sydney Morning Herald for 20 years, never owned a share. Oh, fascinating. Um, and, I mean, you could walk down Macquarie Street with Tom, yeah. And every every businessman, every politician who went past would stop and say hello to him. You mean he was an ethical him. journalist? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, in so many ways. But, you know, it's very, very hard to find anybody who would even understand why he, why he thought he had to do that. Mm, no, that's right. That's really you interesting. Know, I mean, now you think, oh, you know, but surely, you know, Surely the buying and selling of shares is what it's all about, is what they would think. So, indeed, in all of those kinds of levels, and they treat the and you know, this bizarreness of saying that they treat the stock market as if it was a kind of, well, family friend. Oh, it's not feeling too well today. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or uh, maybe a, a Buddhist shrine that they, room that they have in their houses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so our choice, you know, I mean, some people will say to you, oh, you know, the point is to change the world, not to interpret it. Well, you don't get a choice. I mean, you know, if you really think that, then what you're saying is that Marx wasted about 10 years of his life. If you think all you have to do, because he was politically active, organising the International Working Men's Association while he was writing Das Kapital. He knew that to interpret the world, you've got to be involved in changing it, and to change it, you've got to change it in the directions you want it to go and understand that. Then you've got to be seriously interpreting it as well. These are not choices for anybody who wants to overthrow the capitalist system. Change and interpretation are part of the one big process. Well, thanks, Humphrey, for talking to us today. Thank you for having me again, and we're getting closer. And next time, the Bank for International Settlements, I hope, will have its annual report out, and we'll see how they think the system's travelling. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Okay, thanks, Annie. Bye. The 3CR annual radiothon is almost here. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. To donate, just call 03 9419 or online at 3cr.org.au. Help keep this mighty station going strong for many more years to come.
Radiothon 2017, 3CR, Radio for Change. And don't forget, Solidarity Breakfast Radiothon show is on June the 17th, so uh, don't be square, be there and ring up and uh, support uh, Community Radio 3CR, the radio for change. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. But before I go, I'll give you a a lowdown of uh, what we looked at today. We looked at Time to Draw the Line, a a movie by Mandy King and uh, Fabio... Cavadini, and uh, which is all about Timor Leste and Australia's inability to front up and uh, draw the line between the two sovereign states, which would allow Timor Leste to actually get, uh, get the uh, uh, funds that come from the resources that are in that sea, the gas and the oil. Greedy, greedy, greedy Australian capitalists. Uh, following that, we uh, talked to Stephen Langton, who uh, took exception, Langford, who took exception to Amanda Vanstone being on our end, calling for her a dismissal from a prime time program that goes right across the country, where she expresses her lopsided views, which are, you know, being a liberal ex. Immigration Minister is uh, probably a bit unseemly. Uh, the uh, This is the week that was, and followed by Humphrey McQueen. We're going to go out with Andalusia, this wild piece of music, Beth King and the Hemingway Company. <laughs>
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.